I've listened to Private Dancer by Tina Turner for six months. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. everybody and welcome back to spin it the record ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music i'm james and with me is connor i'm not making the mistake of pretending not to introduce you again because that was such a flop i love recording this podcast i'm glad you should do it more often i only got one question for you yeah what's love got to do with it <laughs> well love you've got passion for the podcast that's what it's got to do with it all I know is that this podcast better be good to me. Why do you always do and this? And I can't stand in the rain. You can't stand the rain. <laughs> That's all you know. Okay. You just do the same kind of bit a lot. Kind of annoys you. That's why. Well, and once it starts, it's totally predictable. Uh, I just, I really went into it with this one because I do enjoy this podcast and I thought it'd be fun to do the What's Love Got to Do With It bit. Oh, it was. That one was fun. And then, you know, as always, I got to take it too far. That's okay. Understandable. The audience doesn't even understand how much I take it too far because you cut half of it. I do cut a lot of it. So Tina Turner's probably a little before your music listening time. What makes you think that? Well, your age, mostly. Yeah, but I've talked about what kind of household I grew up in, what kind of music played. Okay. Was it Tina Turner? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what makes me think it. You've talked about it. Uh, I don't know. It maybe didn't. I just didn't recognize it at the time. I didn't pay attention to it. This is definitely the kind of music I think my dad would have listened to. So there's a good chance I heard it growing up. That's true. How do you feel about 80s, like, synth pop in general? I mean, we talked about it a little bit on Wham. We touched it, but... It's hit or miss for me. Okay, and we'll see whether Tina's a hit or a miss, too. We will find out. We sure will. This is an episode I've been really looking forward to doing. The first Tina Turner album that I listened to was actually a bit of, like, a compilation album. And so I wanted to dig into Private Dancer and really, like, get an experience of a Tina Turner album cover to cover. And since then, I've really been looking forward to doing it on the podcast. I've just been looking for the right time to slot it in. And wouldn't you know, today is that right time. Today's the slot. Today's the Tina Turner slot. Yeah, it is. Let's talk about Tina Turner, the uh, so-called queen of rock and roll. She was born Anna Mae Bullock in 1939 in a little town of Brownsville in West Tennessee. More specifically, she lived in a little town called Nutbush, which she sings about extensively (laughs) in a song called Nutbush City Limits. She's really proud of her origins, but she kind of had like a tough family life growing up. Her parents split up when she was young, leaving her to live with her grandma, and she said she never actually felt wanted by her parents as a child, which is a rough way to grow up. She started off singing in church choirs as a girl, and then in high school, she moved into cheerleading and basketball. When she was 16, she moved to live with her mom in St. Louis, and she was working at a nurse's aide in a local hospital. In 1957, in St. Louis, she and her sister would spend time around the club scene, just getting out, having a good time in St. Louis clubs, and that's where she first encountered Ike Turner, who was playing with his Kings of Rhythm band. She saw Ike, she watched him perform, and she said she, quote, almost went into a trance. And she basically made up her mind on the spot. She said, I want to sing in the band with him. Even though that was a thing that Ike really didn't do. To that point, he didn't really have female singers in his band. He wasn't really all about it. She approached Ike with that idea, and he kind of gave her the slip. He he said, I'd call you, but then he never called. Just kind of left her hanging. But she was persistent, and one night in between songs, she just kind of jumped up on the stage, and she snagged Mike from the drummer. She sang a cover of a B.B. King song, and more or less, it blew Ike Turner away. He asked her what else she knew, and that same night he invited her to be the band's featured vocalist. 
She made it. She was in the door. She started featuring in Ike Turner and the Kings of Rhythm songs as Little Anne in 1958. Her first appearance with them was on a song called Box Top. And through all that touring and, and Ike Turner work, she caught the eye of major labels through this lucky turn of events. She wrote a song, because she was writing songs all through this, a song called A Fool in Love for Art Lassiter, who was a friend and a frequent collaborator of Ike Turner. And it was supposed to have Art Lassiter as the main vocalist, right? She just wrote a song for him. Not an uncommon thing. But he actually didn't show up to the recording session. He kind of just took a pass. So she took over the vocals for herself with the demo. And the intent was to have the vocals replaced when the song was finalized. But that demo was so good that she got a lot of pressure just to send it to the president of the label Sue Records, an R&B label. And when the president of that label heard the song, he said, she sounded like screaming dirt, but in a good way. That was a compliment. I don't know. Did you hear a lot of screaming dirt influences on this album? We'll find out. I guess we will. <laughs> what do you think dirt sounds like when it screams? Tina Turner. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I said the question, and I instantly knew your response, and it still hit me like a sack of bricks. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was right there. You teed it up. Oh, man. Anyway, uh, so so Sue Records picks up A Fool in Love with Tina Turner, and they suggest to Ike Turner, well, it, not Tina Turner at the time, right? Still Little Ann. But they tell Ike that he should pivot the act and make Little Ann the star of the show. Ike says, okay, I like that direction, but we're really going to have to change it up. And that is when she made the change from Little Anne into Tina Turner. Ike was actually the one that came up with that name. But interestingly, uh, he kept the trademark on it so that he was able to pull a switcheroo if Tina ever decided to leave the band. He was going to, you know, stealthily slip in a different Tina Turner, which I did not realize before I researched for this episode. <laughs> but the two actually did get married in 1962, and that's when Little Anne and Ike Turner and the Kings of Rhythm turned into the Ike and Tina Turner Review. That was like a controversial marriage, too, wasn't it? Like, it was, I like, slipped away to somewhere and got married without telling people. I don't know about slipping away, uh, but it wasn't exactly the best marriage. No, that's for sure. It was tumultuous, fraught with discord. <laughs> Definitely, they did not always see eye to eye on things. But, I mean, personal difficulties aside, they did start making music together, too. And they began a very, very rigorous touring schedule on the Chitlin Circuit, which we talked about before a couple times, actually, both with Stevie Ray Vaughan and John Batiste. Then the Chitlin Circuit, right, it was just this very famous, like, African-American circuit of musicians and music. You tour all around all the places, and it was a major R&B and blues circuit for music. So Ike, Tina, and the Ikeettes, which, by the way, the Ikeettes, really? That may be one of the worst, like, backup <laughs> singer names I've ever heard in my life. It's wild. Anyway, they were playing as many as 90 shows on 90 days, and they shot to the moon. They took off. They were huge in the R&B world all throughout the early 60s. Very significant duo. They did work with producer Phil Spector and his infamous Wall of Sound. We've talked about Phil Spector before, though I can't exactly remember when. He's come up. He's an important producer. Actually, he one time called their single River Deep Mountain High some of his best work. So that's pretty significant. The duo, they started earning Grammys. They opened for the Rolling Stones. They appeared on television programs like The Ed Sullivan Show, The Andy Williams Show, and more. And their concerts drew plenty of famous fans, including David Bowie, Janis Joplin, Elton John, Elvis Presley, Sly Stone, James Brown, and more. I mean, they were high-profile music superstars. 
In the meantime, Tina was already kind of starting to break away from Ike and from the band, you know, trying to do her own thing. She would make solo appearances on TV shows. She would perform headlining shows in smaller, more intimate settings than Ike and the band were doing, including, actually, a cabaret stint at Caesars Palace in Vegas. She put out a handful of solo records during this time, too. Tina Turner, interestingly, was the first black artist and the first female artist to grace the cover of Rolling Stone magazine in 1967. And, of course, as their notoriety increased, their relationship started to deteriorate even more. Ike Turner started to lean really heavily on drugs, specifically cocaine, and at one point he and Tina kind of got into a physical fight, an altercation, and that for her was kind of a last straw moment. So their divorce got finalized in early 1978. And that's kind of what leads into the context of Private Dancer. Private Dancer came out in 1984, I mean a couple years later, but this is effectively Tina's first solo work since breaking off completely with Ike Turner. It's a very pop-leaning R&B record, and it was Tina's fifth solo studio album, but like I said, and being her first away from Ike, it was also her first with Capitol Records. Private Dancer peaked at number three on the Billboard 200, and it held that position for 10 weeks, and it was on the charts for a 39 weeks total, which is a really remarkable run. As far as other interesting things about Private Dancer, they recorded the album overseas in England, and it features the work of four different production teams, which is wild for 10 tracks. It's actually Tina's best-selling record in the United States to date, even all these years later, and frankly, it's pretty easy to see why once we get into it. It's certified five times platinum in the United States, one of the best-selling albums ever in Germany, certified gold five times. It was triple platinum in the UK, seven times platinum in Canada. I think it's kind of safe to say this may be one of the best-selling albums that we've covered so far in 65 episodes, although I would bet Michael Jackson's Thriller gives it a run for its money. I don't know. What album, do you think any of it sold better than this? Sold better than this one? We'll talk about it. Oh, okay. Interesting. Sounds like you know things that I don't. I got a little peek. Uh-huh. So Private Dancer, big seller. It also earned four of Tina Turner's Grammys. In 2020, this album, like so many others that we've talked about, made it into the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry for being a significant musical work. And as far as Tina's personal accolades go, she is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. Once with Ike Turner and once as a solo artist, which just happened in 2021. Interestingly, only 25 other people have the honor of being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame multiple times. Who else? I feel like, have we talked about another one who's done that? You look that up. I'll keep going. When Tina was 44, she became the oldest female solo artist with a song that topped the Billboard Hot 100. And actually, here's a fun fact that I really like. Tina Turner acted in a rock opera that you will almost certainly be hearing more about in the future. She played the Acid Queen in The Who's Tommy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, I got the list. The list, okay, of people who've been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame multiple times. Yeah. Uh, there's several we've done. Yeah. I kind of remember talking about a few. Dave Grohl from Nirvana and then, of course, the Foo Fighters. Michael Jackson, of course, the Jackson 5 and himself. Yes. And uh, Stevie Nicks Fleet with Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. No, you're right. Now that you mentioned it, I do distinctly remember talking about Stevie Nicks being in there multiple times. Yeah. And then Eric Clapton, who's in it three times, apparently. Uh, the Yardbirds, Cream, and then himself. I think Eric Clapton is the only Rock and Roll Hall of Fame triple inductee. Yeah, that's the only one on the list I'm seeing. Yeah. So what do you know? How about that? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm ready for some Tina Turner trivia, which may or may not be Tina Turner lies. Yeah, some TTT? Yeah. Let's get the mixtaper out here for some factor spin 
and we'll see whether he's come with true facts about Tina Turner or filthy, filthy lies. Hey, it's me, the Mixtaper. Mixtaper, welcome back to the show. How are you doing this fine October evening? Pretty good. Great. Glad to hear it. Now, just to remind everybody of the stakes for this week, in the last episode about AJR, I regained a one-point lead on the season. Yes, yes, you did. In this game, I mean, anything can happen. This week, I could get shut out, and you could take a one-point lead. I'd take more than a one-point. <laughs> if you got shut out, I'd take more than... I'd be up two points. Well, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> the math department did not help me on that one. No, they did not. <laughs> I don't want to cast them in a bad light. I just want to come out and say I did that myself. Oh, okay. You know, own up to it. Mm-hmm. Let's start with our first supposedly true fact. The first is a very good place to begin. She taught a legend to dance. Is this person legendary for dancing? Or did she just like... Uh, yeah. There's a whole song about it. There's a whole song about teaching someone to dance? Uh-huh. Is the song what taught this person to dance? No. Okay, good. Which legend has she instructed in the way of the dance? Mick Jagger. She taught him those moves like Mick Jagger. She taught Mick Jagger's moves like Jagger? Yeah. I am instantly skeptical. Wow. Yeah, go for it. Be skeptical. I am. <laughs> so when does Mick Jagger learn to dance? What's he up to? I mean, the Rolling Stones come about in the early 60s. Is he dancing then or just rolling? You know, she claims she taught him how to dance and he never gave her credit for it. Instead, giving the credit to his mother. Oh, interesting. But she says she and the girls taught him how to pony backstage in a dressing room. What is... And he then took it and turned it into his signature dance move that everybody knows today. But they're the one that taught him the fancy feet work. What is the pony? I don't know if I'm super familiar. The pony is kind of... Just show me. (laughs) Show you? What? (laughs) It's an audio part. So it's the like right, left, right, left, right, left kind of feet work move. Um, and you've seen Mick Jagger dance, right? I have. I've seen Mick Jagger dance in person, and I just don't remember it. Oh. So why did he need to be taught to do that? It doesn't sound remarkably complicated to hear you describe it, and I'm sure you've only used the most technical terms. He wanted to learn how to dance, and he wasn't good at it. So in the dressing room, huh? Where? Why were they in the same place at the same time? So Tina Turner first toured with the Rolling Stones in England in 1966. Yeah, that does track. I did mention that that happened. 1966, I'm thinking of the wrong era. When you first brought this fact up, I was thinking young Mick Jagger, just learning, you know, starting out in the rock and roll world. Which would also mean a Tina Turner who's still relatively unknown, just beginning to shine like a superstar in Ike Turner's band. This isn't that. This is years down the road. Ike and Tina are huge. The Rolling Stones are huge. They're touring together backstage in the dressing room. Tina and I guess the Ikeettes... (laughs) decide to show Mick Jagger the pony. She said he would just stand on stage with a tambourine and kind of look stiff. And so they tried to teach him some moves like the pony and some hip movements, and they'd all just laugh. Just laugh? He wasn't good at it. Not at first, then. Yeah. So he credits his mom. Why in particular? That that seems like a... He actively denies Tina Turner credit to give it to his mother. I just think in interviews, when he's asked about his dances, he talks about how his mother liked to dance, and so he learned it from her. Okay. And so then in another interview, Tina Turner was like, well, hang on now. I'm the one that taught him how to dance. Nice. I think I'm going to say that this one is a fact. I'm I'm liking it. Wow, I convinced you. You were you were very against it at the beginning I, and I turned you around on I it. I came out of the gate skeptical. The timing lined up better than I thought, and the scenario doesn't seem too unlikely if they were on tour together, you know? And and I also don't know that it's just everything seems to make sense to me yeah i'm saying fact let's see how we started off this week all right well you're starting off 
Pretty good. This is a fact. Okay. All right. One for one. She's got the moves like Jagger, really, is what this whole thing has been about. Again, she claims credit. He gives credit to his mother, so, you know, it's it's a little fact-ish. What if she taught Mick Jagger's mom? And that's how, you know? Maybe it's both true. Whoa. Yeah. Transitive property. The dancitive property. (laughs) All right, enough of that. (laughs) What's fact number two? Fact number two, she performed on Broadway. Okay, this seems almost like a gimme. Yeah? Yeah. Gimme. (laughs) what did she perform on broadway she performed the song nutbush city limits nutbush city limits that's the one i talked about that's a good song it is just a song she performed Mm -hmm. a song on broadway on broadway the street or was she like in a theater (laughs) in a theater so what was the occasion for this the premiere of tina the tina turner musical on broadway that's great oh when did that come out on Broadway in 2019, on the West End in 2018. Okay. Yeah, see, I knew it was a more recent musical. That kind of stirred up a lot more discussion about Tina Turner in the music world. Everyone really was talking about Tina the musical. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. I know a little bit about the song Nutbush City Limits because it was on that compilation album that I mentioned, the first Tina exposure that I had. Mm. And I learned that that compilation album was created and kind of there were some re-recordings and some covers and some other things created for a movie called what's love got to do with it of course i was doing some reading about that as well that movie i think is based off of her first autobiography yeah it's like that story but in movie form yes and that came out in the mid 90s so this musical tina the musical came out Mm -hmm. you know 20 years later than that but why that song it's not her biggest hit i know it's a very personal one to her which maybe is why exactly maybe i just answered my own question Mm -hmm. but is there any other reason it's actually the song that opens the musical um spoiler alert and it and proud mary are the reprises used during the finale and encore for which she came up on stage that makes so much sense i hate you Mm. this has to be a fact i mean it doesn't that's the whole point of the game i know it doesn't (laughs) i know it doesn't but i think this is true i know that that musical existed i know the song nutbush city limits i know it's about her hometown it makes perfect sense to open a musical about her life that way whether she sang it or not i don't know but that would be really cool and i'm gonna i'm gonna lean into wanting to believe this and i'm gonna say it's a fact a classic lean classically screwed you up this is a spin this is a spin everything i told you was true it's the first song it's the uh reprise during the finale and encore she was at the premiere she came up on stage and gave a little speech at the end did not sing yeah <laughs> nutbush city limits is a heck of a song to sing at that age anyway it's high energy yeah okay well that is a bummer it was not a gimme and i should have known because it sounded like a gimme that it would have been a spin when you first said it, i was like why is this a gimme <laughs> i was like <laughs> I was very confused. No, I thought it sounded like a gimme because she does these big songs. I knew about Tina the Musical, Tina the Movie, and she was in The Who's Acid Queen. I mentioned that. She's been in a musical. And so I didn't think it was too out of the realm of possibility that she got into more like that. But I guess I was wrong in this case. In this case. It was a gimme, but you can have it back. <laughs> oh, thank you. It was a give me, and but you gave it away. I did. You, ga- you give me. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, it's a give you. <laughs> the next one she has well she has had two world records oh she has had two world records 
So the first thing that that implies is that one or both of those world records no longer stands and has been broken. Is that a correct assumption? Yes, one of them has been. One of them? Okay, so let's start out with what the two records are. I'll see if I can guess which one's been broken. Okay. The first one is for being the first oh, well, non-classical composer to be inducted into New York City's Steinway Hall. I'll be honest, that doesn't seem like one you can break. I think that's once it's once it's busted, you're you're in. Well, yeah, that's fair. I mean, you're always the first, right? Yeah. But they're also the only as far as I'm aware. Okay, sure. So the world record that she did hold but doesn't anymore is the following. Having the largest paying audience for a solo performer. Oh, that's a cool fact. How big was the paying audience? 180 thousand that's so many people where was this audience is this somewhere like a i don't know like a wembley stadium like a like a big deal thing it was during her break every rule world tour i don't actually know where it happened but that was the tour okay and it was just one stop on the tour that drew one hundred eighty thousand people yeah guess who broke it don't look it up no cheating i won't look it up i'll give you a bonus point a full bonus point if you can guess who who broke it who immediately broke it or who now holds it yeah. or is it the same person uh either they're not the same person okay so you get either I know I know. big crowds have turned out to see Ed Sheeran in London. I think he played a Wembley Stadium show that was huge. He is on my short list of current record holders. In terms of past record holders that immediately broke it, when was this record set, first of all? I mean, what, when was the world tour? Uh, it was set January 16th of 1988. 1988, and where was the record broken? Oh, I do have the information. At Maracanã Stadium in Rio de Janeiro. So in the 80s, how long did she hold this record? A little over two years. So in 1990, then, someone broke the record. Yeah, on April 20th. April 20th, 1990. How big was the record-breaking crowd then? 184,000. Oh my goodness. Fun fact, the person Tina beat, and the person who beat Tina and Tina, all broke the record at the same venue. Oh, wow. So it's all in Brazil. Who did this? <laughs> Michael Jackson. It is not Michael Jackson. But the person who had the highest before Tina was Frank Sinatra. Oh, awesome. In January 26th of 1980 on his Frank Sinatra live tour, 175,000. The person who beat Tina Turner, Paul McCartney. Oh, okay. On the Paul McCartney World Tour with 184,000. And the current holder set on the 1st of July in 2017, Vasco Rock. Rossi is how I think that name's pronounced. Okay. I might not have guessed. <laughs> At the Parco Enzo Ferrari venue in Modena uh, with 220,000 people. Wow. And again, that's single artist's ticketed concert. Okay, so we've really spent a lot of time on that record. We really did, and it'll get cut down a little bit. And if this is a spin, you really did a bang-up job of picking an arbitrary number and year to put this record at. So, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm leaning fact. Let's talk about the second world record of being the first... Yes. First person who is a non-classical composer to be inducted into New York City's Steinway Hall. So tell me more about the Steinway Hall. Assume I know nothing, because some people in the audience might know nothing. Like you. Well, no, I mean, just assume it. I might know things, but you don't know that. Okay, fine, like me. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so Steinway Hall is the name of a group of building housing concert halls, showrooms, and stuff. 
in New York City, and they induct a bunch of pretty much all classical composers who have made significant contributions to music. How's Tina crack through the defenses as a non-classical composer? Is it something specific that she wrote or just her general musical contributions? Uh, so most of these awards go to people who teach classical music. Mm-hmm. And she did a stint of teaching in New York City. And I think that's what appears to have made her eligible. This article is not very good. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> when did she earn that award? In 2011, on December 12th. Okay. I think I'm going to say, unless you've got other information, I'm ready to lock in that these are two factual world records held and formerly held by Tina Turner. My only other piece of information is that uh, they get a painted portrait of themselves that hangs in one of the Steinway halls. That's the only other bit of information, if that influences you at all. Well, I was I was going along with it, and then you said painted portrait, <laughs> and that can't be right. Uh, yeah, no, that doesn't influence my decision. Oh, okay. I actually, for a split second, thought you were going to say, my only other piece of information is that this is a spin, and that would have been sad. Oh, well, my only other piece of information well, no. is that this is a spin. <laughs> well, yeah, but you don't have to say that because it's not true. You could just say it's a fact. No, but it is. It's a spin. No, but... <laughs> no, but surely that was factual. No, surely it's a spin. <laughs> Guess which one of them's a spin. One of them's true. Is the is the single ticket seat one a spin? I wish it was. No, that's the true. Oh. But for half a bonus point, I'm passing out bonus points this episode. No, you're not. I wish you were. <laughs> well, I'm trying to. <laughs> Gimme. <laughs> that award is true about an artist we have done now if we're talking classical composers i'm leaning much more on the side of a michael buble or a barry manilow michael buble writes music but his songs always end up not you know uh haven't met you yet they're not very classical you know who does barry manilow he's a new york guy he writes show tunes mm. and could maybe be considered mm. to write classical music Oh, the other snag in this is Billy Joel, another New York guy who has written a lot of classical music, not on his albums. Now, hang on. Let's not count out everyone's favorite, Miley Cyrus. (laughs) There's no way it's true about Miley Cyrus, but I am going back and forth between Billy Joel and Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow seems less world record holding worthy as the first person to get inducted. Dang. And of course, all of these might be totally wrong. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I'm going to say Billy Joel. Billy Joel, that's what you're locking in for your half a point bonus? Yeah, I might as well. Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time in Spin It history. No way. We have given out a bonus point. It is the man, the myth, the legend, Billy Joel. We got a bonus point. Oh, I did it. Billy Joel. Um, I believe it's because of all of his piano work. Because mm-hmm. it's hung in the Steinway Piano Gallery. I believe. That's right. Steinway does make pianos. Yeah. He is a piano man. Yes. I saw that. I That popped up on my, uh, uh, sorry, on the mixtapers uh, Twitter feed. That is <laughs> you. Article no, that it. is you. Oh, no. Sorry. That is me. Crap. Uh, uh, scrap. Scrap. <laughs> uh, the narrative is so hard to follow. Uh, yeah. It popped up on my uh, Twitter feed at... Uh, at <laughs> at Mr. Mixtape. At what's my, the what's underscore mixtaper. It's easy. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> it's your title separated with an underscore. Uh, yeah, on my it uh, popped up on my Twitter feed at the underscore mixtaper. I see. 
I see. Uh, and so I saw. I was like, "That's cool. We gotta talk about that in some way." And then I was like, "I saw the cool Tina Turner thing." I was like, "There's no way he's not gonna think that's true because of how detailed it is." So let's throw in this other really detailed one with it. Yep, Tina Turner has one world record. Had one world record, but you got half a point, so it's really only half a loss there. Well, yeah. I guess. Yeah, so uh, if I get this next one, I will have the lead by half a point. If not, you'll have the lead by one and a half points. But this is a historic day for the bonus point mechanic. Yeah, we've done it a lot, and it's always ridiculously hard, and it gets harder with every new artist we had. It's true. So that's that. Uh, let's let's take it into the final ramp. <clears throat> the final ramp. It's a good one. For the fate of the episode hangs in the balance. The fate of the season might hang in balance. <laughs> and so did... uh. Tina Turner when she got stuck on a horse. All these people are getting stuck. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Tina Turner stuck on a horse. Indeed. I th- honestly, I would argue it's harder to get stuck on a horse than it is to get off of one. <laughs> Was she like stuck in the saddle in the stirrups? Like where? What happened? She just couldn't get off of it. Again, seems like the easiest thing to do is to just lean. It's not a safe way to get off necessarily, but you'd be off. So where's she horseback riding? Uh, On the set of a movie. Is it a little redundant that we call it horseback riding? What other part of a horse has anyone ever ridden? The set of a movie. What movie? Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Mad Max? Are there horses in Mad Max? I thought they all drove around on like fighting cars. I've never seen Mad Max. For the most part, they do. For the most part, that is the case. Maybe that's why she got stuck. Nobody knew how to ride a horse anymore. (laughs) Mad Max is like this like weird mix of, you know, it's like a dystopian future. So there's a lot of futuristic machinery technology, but yet they're living in an apocalypse scenario. And so they've also like lost a lot of the knowledge of civilization. And so it's a weird mix of new and old. You got like fancy vehicles with spikes and chainsaws coming off of them. And then you also have people riding around with like leather masks on horseback. You know, it's like it's like this weird mix. Right. What's she doing in that movie? She's the female lead. Is she really? Having never seen Mad Max. That's what I'm telling you. It's up to you to decide if she is really. Uh Uh-huh. Tell me more about the female (laughs) lead as a character. Uh, The female lead is also actually kind of the main villain, you could argue. Okay. It's one of those situations where, like, there's a villain that they set up, and then you find out, oh, there's an even villainier villain. The bait and switch. A big bad. Yeah. She's the Emperor Palpatine to the series Darth Vader. In a way. Spoilers for Mad Max, apparently. Yeah, it came out in 1985, so oh, don't feel too bad. No, I don't feel. <laughs> so how much horseback riding does she do for the role? Is it a one-scene thing or, like, frequent? I actually haven't seen this movie myself either. Oh. But in the Wikipedia plot summary, there is a, a specific scene called out where she is on horseback. So there's at least one. Could be more. Well, if it's called out like that, it must be a significant one. We're straying away from the main fact here. Yes. So she does she have someone come and help her off? How does this story end? Yeah, well, it was just, you know, she's on it, they do the take or whatever, and then she can't get off of it. Uh, She can't figure out how to dismount the horse. Okay, so it's not like Smashing Pumpkins where it just took off into a Walmart somewhere. It just... (laughs) (laughs) Nothing exciting. She's just stuck, couldn't get down. And where did she talk about this? In the uh, extras portion of the DVD release. So you've seen the extras portion of the DVD release of Mad Max 1985. No, I haven't. I found an art. I found on a <laughs> list of crazy facts about Tina Turner. <laughs> I found this and followed the breadcrumbs. Fair enough. <laughs> Why would I have seen the extras section, but not the movie? What's wrong with That's you? That's what I was asking. I wanted to know what was wrong with you. I think I'm going to say this one is 
a fact. This is a dangerous fact because I know so little about the movie and the circumstances surrounding it, but I'm feeling like that's the way to go. And, and the gut has led me in the correct direction for the last three episodes. So I'm going to let the gut feeling steer me again. You felt pretty good about this one. Mm hmm. And I feel like I'm back in the lead because this is a spin. Oh, man. Wow. Okay. A spin. I went, I went fact, spin, spin, spin. You did. Swept the leg on that one. Yeah, but you did get half a bonus point, so well, that only puts me in the lead by half a point. So I think now is the perfect time to end this season of Factor Oh, no. And so I guess by a half point, this season comes to an end. This is the closest season yet. The stakes have never been higher. We were tied for so long. Then you were in the lead. Then I was in the lead. Then you were in the lead again. I snuck out the win by half a point. On the last episode of the season, who could have guessed... Who could have guessed that the season would end right now? <laughs> yeah, I don't know when the season started because it's all been arbitrary. But that brings up a very exciting point. Next season starts on the next episode, which is the start of something special, I've heard. It is something special. Yeah, you got something in mind? It is Mixtober! Mixtober, tell me more. It's basically... You know, fall, Halloween is in October, pumpkin spice is all the rage. It's just a very mixed, tapery month of the year. Well, as a villain. Yeah, as a villain, as somebody who wears a mask, as somebody who lies, it, it's just all there. As the creator of pumpkin spice. <laughs> as somebody who lies and the creator of pumpkin spice. <laughs> It's It's got it all. It's going to be a little extra mixtaper throughout the rest of the month of October. We might have some fun Halloween shenanigans going on. Maybe some bonus content if I get around to it. I've got some ideas stirring. Yeah, and we've got some, some more Halloween-focused albums starting next week for the, for the rest of the month. Yes. And that'll be really exciting. I'm excited to talk about them. Stay tuned for Mixtober. All month long on Spin It. Woo! Well, most of the month long. This one came out in October. All the rest. This is, no, this could be part of it. You know what? This is a Halloween album too. Is this like the Lion King one and a half? No, I'll tell you what. Here's why it counts for a Halloween album. Look at the cover of this album. Connor and I will talk about it in a minute. You see that black cat right at her feet? Oh. Mm -hmm. This is part of Mixtober. Very October, yeah. Very Halloween. Mm -hmm. Of course I won the first episode of Mixtober to include the season. Well, yeah. It's my month. I'm extra fueled by the mixy vibes <laughs> and mixed over. The mixy vibes whatever well we'll see plenty of you this month so i guess it's time for you to skedaddle all right i'll see you next week yeah all right welcome back connor let's talk about the album art on tina turner's private dancer let's do it now nah, let's uh like we already kind of mentioned there is a black cat on the album cover right down at her feet she's basically just in this black dress sitting on a chair, black cat at her feet. Indeed. So the black cat is what qualifies this to be an October, a mixtober episode of sorts. It, it counts. It's there. Yes. Halloween. Yeah. What do you think? That's Tina Turner. Yeah. Not much to talk about. No. Pretty standard. Yeah. I will say that looks like one of the most uncomfortable chairs I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Yeah, it does not look good. It looks terrible to sit on. And she's on it, like, at an angle, too. Like, the way she's sitting in it, like, it's gotta be the most uncomfortable angle to sit at. Yeah, it has, that can't be, I hope that they didn't take too long for this cover photo shoot, because, yikes, would have been painful on the rear. 
I guess with that, not much to say about the album cover. Let's talk about track one, I Might Have Been Queen, album opener. You know, some people would argue that Tina is a queen, right? Like we said, she is kind of the bearer of the nickname Queen of Rock and Roll. Indeed. Yeah, but this song isn't about anything like that. This song is a a very, like, spiritually focused song. It's all about reincarnation and imagining all the things you might have been in a past life. Tina actually became a Buddhist herself in the early 70s, and so this song is a reflection on that, that change in her life and her perspective. Yes. I don't think she beats around the bush. That The first verse lays it out really clearly and in a really unique way right off the bat, right? She says, I'm a new pair of eyes every time I'm born. And so it's cool to me to describe this concept of rebirth, this process, with a focus on eyes and that specific sense and that specific experience from person to person or time period to time period. Yeah, this song's all right. I don't know. Compared to what's next, it's not a powerhouse. Well, okay. Yeah, but you could say that about almost anything on this record compared to what's next. And I will. (laughs) So noted. Uh Uh-oh. That's an early indicator. Things may be rocky ahead, but we'll see. What do you mean? I don't know. Just if you're comparing everything on the album to what's love got to do with it, go easy on it. Yeah. They can't all be the biggest Tina Turner song of all time. They could be the second biggest, but... Well, that's true. Maybe some of them are. So the verses lay out, you know, the, the reincarnation thing. The chorus is a little more obscure, which is kind of interesting you know how the verses are a little more general just talking about having a new pair of eyes but then in the chorus we get this specific bit of memory from a past life remembering a girl in a field who knew love but quote the river don't stop for me as in you know i think the river of time keeps moving and i'm powerless against it i just keep moving along which is a great concept Yeah, it is. It really is. And she really hammers it home on that outro, (laughs) a sole survivor on the river for a long time. How'd the outro go for you? Too repetitive? Not repetitive enough? It was all right. I don't think it got too repetitive. It's an outro. It's true. I mean, if you're going to get repetitive, an outro is a good spot to do it. And it's an outro that sets up, again, probably the most significant track easily on this album, but maybe of Tina Turner's musical career as a solo artist. It's up there. It's up there, yes. River Deep, Mountain High is also up there. It is. Uh, Proud Mary is another one that's pretty popular. That's true, but I still think both of those kind of pale in comparison to What's Love got to do with it yeah it's a powerhouse yeah and believe it or not though as much of a powerhouse as it is this song got passed around nobody wanted it it got offered up to cliff richard donna summer bucks fizz and a couple other people who just passed it on just just sent it on its way which is how tina got her hands on it it turned out to be obviously a huge hit so some folks really dropped the ball This was a three-week U.S. chart topper in 1984, and this song alone won three Grammys all by itself, and of course it charted internationally as well. And uh, what's love got to do with it is all about the physical sensations of intimacy, you know, and literally, as the title says, what's love got to do with it? We don't need love to have that kind of chemistry, right? It's not a part of the equation. It's a secondhand emotion. Yeah, what is it but a secondhand emotion? I like how this song also has kind of turned into one that people automatically start singing whenever somebody says, what's love? It's either this one or baby don't hurt me. Yeah. What's interesting too is I don't think that this song says that there's no love. I think that's an easy thing to overlook, but I think... They're saying it's irrelevant. Right, yeah. I don't think she's telling this guy, hey, I don't love you, so stop feeling this way. In my mind, this song kind of feels more like a denial. Like, I don't want this to be love. I don't want this feeling to be love. So maybe we can suppress that and still 
You know, like there's nothing more to it. Maybe that's the case. Yeah. That especially comes out in the second verse where she talks about looking dazed and feeling confused. This kind of like love drunkness in spite of not wanting to put her heart on the line because a heart can be broken. Plus, I mean, add into that in the third verse where she says she's only thinking about her own protection. It really makes me feel like this is a song not denying that love exists, but kind of refusing to acknowledge it. I have a question. Yes. So on Spotify, right, these are all the remastered versions, right? Yeah. Do you think remastered versions weaken a song at all compared to how it was originally intended to be heard and recorded with the technology of the time? I think it depends. I just, I almost never find myself liking remasters. Like, not even, like, there's not a lot of times where I even hear a comparison of the two, but I find myself... When it's a remaster versus like one of their other songs that isn't remastered, uh-huh. I tend to like the non-remastered sound better, even if the song's not as good. That's interesting. Which is weird. I guess that's the same kind of thing you had on the Beach Boys, where you listen to the stereo versions instead of the mono. Yeah, it just feels synthetic, I guess. Mm. Well, I mean, to be fair, the whole song kind of has the synthetic air to it, because that's just the pinnacle of 1984 pop music. Right. Which, that flute sound, by the way, is just so quintessentially 80s pop to me. Like, some songs get older and start to sound cheesy and dated. I think what makes What's Love Got To Do With It kind of unique is that it sounds old, but has maintained, like, it's continued to age well, if that makes any sense. Because it's good. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not even saying it specifically, like, this song. Like, I love this song. It's my favorite one on the album, spoiler alert. Oh, wow. Thanks. Yeah. But just in general, whenever I hear something that's a remastered version, that's the that's the feeling I get. Like, sometimes I, like, I've been able to pick out when I'm like, is this is a remastered version? Like, I didn't know ahead of time. It's like, I can tell it's a remaster. Yeah. That, I think that's part of it, too, is, like, you're right. The initial one was mastered for, you know, vinyl or CDs or cassette tapes. Mm-hmm. And so it's obviously, yeah, it's going to sound a little different, but also you're going to hear it a little differently. Like if you put just the like the vinyl master onto Spotify, it's okay, but you miss a lot of the depth of the tone. Like vinyl can't capture all of that mm-hmm. as well as maybe you could with a remaster in digital because of the limitations of the medium. So I think in some ways remasters are good because they can bring out elements to the song you, did, you didn't really hear before or you couldn't pick out or that just didn't exist in a different version. But I guess to a certain degree, they're less authentic. It de- again, depends on who's remastered it and how good of a job they've done. Yeah. And whoever does Tina Turner's remasters better show some respect because these are classics. <laughs> That's track three. <laughs> That's right. Show some respect. Track number three. This was one of the record singles. Uh, another one of them, I should say, because it's not the first. <laughs> It peaked at number 37 on the Hot 100, made it to number 50 on the R&B singles charts, and man, does this song have a punch. I I really think Show Some Respect, it's got a good slap to it, you know? It slaps you in the face. Yeah, it's good. I like it. It shows you no respect. Maybe it's a respectful slap. Yes. I think that wah pedal on the guitar is perfect. And, And honestly, because of that and some other elements, of course, but this one was a little reminiscent of some of those Phil Collins songs that we talked about to me. Really? Just in general, the tone of it, yeah. Okay, yeah, I can get beyond that. Obviously not a perfect mirror, but it just called some of them to mind in my head. This song implores a partner to start showing respect because it takes two to make things work. So she's kind of begging them. I think that second verse gets really kind of intense. 
unexpectedly intense for as poppy and upbeat as the song is. She says, I believe in working, and then I believe in a little help because I'm not a light unto myself, which I think is cool. And I think that highlights the need for respect because of the need for teamwork. Like, it's imperative that we work together, and if we're going to be successful in working together, you're going to have to show some respect. Yeah, I like the rhythm to the chorus on this one. Yeah, it does a lot of good breaks in between phrases. Yeah. It uses uh, pauses very well. Mm -hmm. That's honestly its coolest feature. I think it's between the wah-wah pedal Mm -hmm. and the little hits in the chorus. And I think this song is a lot of fun, and I think it's a great way to showcase the power that she can get behind her voice, especially after a softer song like What's Love Got to Do With It. This is a nice turnaround. Do you know what I can't stand? The rain? No, I love the rain. Oh. I can't stand the mixtaper. Wow. Man. No, I'm just kidding. Tell us how you really feel. You're showing the mixtaper no respect. No, I'm just kidding. You're right. No, I can't stand the rain. (laughs) I wanted to do that transition like that, but I didn't think of anything else I couldn't stand in time. Oh, I was always going to pull the rug out from under you. I can't stand the rain. What a bop. I don't know if this one... I can't stand the rain. Yeah, I don't know if you (laughs) like this one as much as I did, but I was sold right away with those little... Like, what are they? The claves? The chimes? Marimba? Like, yeah, I, the claves. That, we've talked about claves in the past, too. We have. Yeah. Wait, on Kings of Leon, episode zero, test episode. Yeah, Kings of Leon. Uh-huh. And then another time, too. But I don't remember that time. I just remember referring back to episode zero again. I definitely remember Kings of Leon, though. Yeah. Because they came up on Muchacho. But this is totally different than that. Yes. I love those. The little clicks. That's another thing. Just like the flute in What's Love, that's totally an 80s pop sound like that doesn't happen today not much anyway yeah and this is an interesting song you know she can't stand the rain because it brings back memories of an ex the song is kind of framed pun intended as her talking to this window and she asks the window if it remembers how sweet life was when she and her ex would watch the rain together and now she can't stand it yeah that's kind of it you know it's almost four minutes we really 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 drive home those lyrics and as much as i love this song musically i do think i'm kind of in your usual corner on this one i really like the sound and the feel of this song and it makes me wish that it did more lyrically because that idea seems to have so much more potential that we just never touch, right? Can't stand the rain. Well, tell us, like, more. Tell us why you can't stand the rain. What happened? You just just watched it? Just sweet memories? Okay? Like, we never go any further than that, and I really wanted her to push it farther. I mean, you literally get one verse, right? It starts off with the chorus. It it does a verse, and it hits chorus, extended chorus, chorus, extended chorus, chorus. This is nothing but I can't stand the rain against my window. Yeah. And when we were togethers. I wish I did a little more uh, lyrically as well, but and the, the, the music's great. Yeah, we I think we agree perfectly in step on this one. Surprisingly. Surprisingly? Does that surprise you? We're sometimes in sync. Uh, we're usually not perfectly in step. Well, okay, good point. Usually we're backwards from one another, if anything. We do kind of have opposite opinions a lot. We're cruising. We're halfway through this album already when we talk about track number five, the title track itself, Private Dancer. I mean, we got to get through the track to be halfway. Okay, but we're coming up on it. Private Dancer, title track. What do you think? This is an interesting song to be the title track. It's the longest song on the album by a matter of two minutes. Yeah. And it's not a song that probably should be the longest song. Really? Uh, yeah, I I think it's a bit long. It doesn't ever really feel burdensome, but it kind of eats that time away. I think you could condense it. Sure. Actually, Private Dancer is a cover. It was originally written and recorded by Dire Straits, 
Yes. But the song's writer and Dire Straits' lead singer, Mark Knopfler, just didn't think that he was able to do the song justice himself. So they reworked the song and sent it Tina's way, and she definitely does it justice. (laughs) It actually was quite a success, too. It peaked at number seven on the Hot 100 chart and number three on the R&B singles chart. No surprise, another huge hit. Okay, tell me what you think about the lyrics of this song. Mm. The lyrics are okay. The, the lyrics I like better than the music, I think. Really? Yeah. Well, we kind of go through it like it tells the story. We set the scene right off the bat, right? All kinds of men stop in at this club and they and they pay the bills. But she talks about how she, quote, doesn't think of them as human, right? Keep your mind on the money and your eyes on the wall. It's a great vivid detail verse, right? It, it paints this really bleak picture where... This is just kind of a thing that you have to do, right? There's no semblance, not even like a hint of enjoyment or satisfaction. Kind of reminds me of what's love got to do with it, but in a negative way. Yeah. But I love that we can kind of get that deep of a view into the speaker as a character from these simple little descriptions and images. And then in that second verse, we kind of get an even deeper dig into her mind, right? She talks about her dreams and her aspirations, right? The family, the seaside home, the money. And to get there, this is just kind of a necessary rung on the ladder, a necessary step on the journey. So I like the lyrics. I like the way we kind of progress through this scenario. All right, I like that you kind of talked yourself into it there. No, no, I like the, I've always liked the lyrics. I don't know. You started off with like, ah, oh, the lyrics, they're all right. I, I, I guess I kind of like them more than the music. And then, like, as you talked about it, you got more positive. <laughs> Your initial review of them was much more negative. But as you kind of explained, it got better. What I wanted to do was parallel the song itself. So in the beginning, I set the scene. And then as you went and dug deeper into my brain, you got to see the beach house in my mind and the you know the family and the money all the all good right, stuff of that. that's coming uh <laughs> i think this is some of the better lyrics on the album yeah i'd agree with that i think the lyrics do a great job of telling a story in very little words it's true very little words but very much time like like on some of these other ones we talked about how we wanted more story right or how we wanted it to do tell do a little more with the lyrics and this one it's the same amount of lyrical content but it's way more deep diving that's yeah that's true uh but i like the music too you said you like the lyrics more than the music what don't you like about the music i think the music is just a little too low-key right especially on the verses i think it doesn't do a lot i think that's exactly what it needed well so that's the other thing i thought about is like the instrumentals are good but they don't really keep your focus but i think kind of that's part of its charm where she's talking about oh stare at the wall and don't think about it you know like i think maybe it tries to project that mentality onto us i think it tries to set the tone of somebody in a watching the private dancer right yeah i feel like it's this kind of moody tone setting music that sits in the background but doesn't draw too much focus so you can focus on the dancer like i feel like it is the perfect atmosphere and style music that you need for a song that talks about what it talks about i think that's a good point and if that's what they were going for i do think they nailed it in that regard it just feels weird after an album that's been so theatrical to get this song that's so subdued like reserved i mean a lot of these are subdued and reserved in terms of its highs and lows in my opinion you're on a roller coaster but it's the roller coaster from kitty funland and not from the main park in my opinion it never goes wild high or low in terms of sound it's a little more compressed lower highs and higher lows let's Stay Stay Together together is the next track on the album. We said it together. Let's Stay Together is another cover. The original came out in 1971. It's by Al Green. Tina's version was yet another Billboard hit, ending up at number 26 in the United States and number 6 in the UK. And this is another one where the title basically just says it all. 
what we're doing is working, so let's keep it up. Let's stay together. The second verse does take a little bit of a pivot, though, that I kind of like. And the second verse says, look, all these people who are on again and off again, just because they can be, like, they're not, it's not working for them. They break up, and they come back, and they break up, and they come back. So why don't we just break that mold, cut out the breakups, <laughs> and let's just stay together? What do you, I really like the ramp up into this song. I know you jumped all the way to verse 2. Well, I just wanted but... to, I wanted to lay out the thematic elements that are staying together. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. I really like this really soft intro that builds into this very soulful singing. Yeah, I love it. Uh, and then it ramps up into that faster, more funky beat. The ba da Yeah, the drums picking up, all the bigger hits, the brass coming in. It's awesome. It's what the song needed. It's a huge build. And, and by the time we get to that final chorus, it's enormous. Just great. I love the ending of this song. This is the highest peak on the album, in my opinion. Ooh. Like, we're talking about the highs and the lows of the roller coaster. Even though What's Love Got to Do With It is maybe the more energizing song, this one still goes higher. Mm. It's a nice slow burn that gets you into it, which makes maybe the hit feel bigger. It creeps you up that hill. It's like a steady rise, whereas What's Love Got to Do With It is rise, fall, left, through a loop, corkscrew, you know, it's going all over the place. And so it's more energizing, but this one goes uh, higher. I don't know about that. About the biggest on the album. We'll get to it in a bit. Okay. It's close, though. It's definitely the biggest build. The the biggest difference between energies in, you know, the lowest point to the highest point of the song. I'll give you that. Mm, we'll see. Well, let's talk about Better Be Good To Me, track seven. It's another cover. This one comes from a band called Spider. And it came out in 1981. And guess what? If you could believe it, Tina's version charted at number five on the Hot 100, number six on the R&B singles, and it picked up a Best Rock Vocal Performance Grammy. I do like that this was originally sung by a band called Spider, and like in the lyrics, it talks about being entangled in your web. Yeah, right? I know. I love the very ambient organ-type sound on this one. I think that's a very nice touch. The problem I had with this song, though, is that it sometimes gets a little lost in the shuffle for me. Really? Yeah, a little bit. It's upbeat, and it's fast. That, but there's that great guitar line, the da-da-da-dum. That's like such a, like, that just sticks in your brain. It tries. It really tries to stick. It does doesn't get tangled in my web interesting i know i do like it as a change of pace though faster than a lot of the stuff we've seen previously and kind of you know more refreshing in a way this song is all about basically if you want to be with her you better be good to her she won't take any of your crap you know and i love that verse it's very solid right you keep telling you you love me and i really do want to believe you but did you think i just accept you in blind faith like you gotta prove it you gotta want it and show it. It's another this is another song where the the words feel less like lyrical verse and more just like spoken word. You know, these are things you just say. Yeah. You don't have to speak them in poetry. This is a good uh song that would be playing like as the uh soundtrack of a movie where like the character's driving his really fast car down a winding country road next to an ocean with the windows or the top down and his hair blowing. A, a country road next to an ocean? You know what I mean? Just like a winding road. Okay. As the camera pans way up onto the horizon and the end shows up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like the protagonist and the the love interest of the story just finally getting their happy ending, driving off uh, into well, the sunset as the thing pans up. They better be good to each other. Yeah. I guess in that sense, yeah, I think maybe the song would be a better end to the album than the one we get. Dang. All right. We've got a couple more yet to talk about, including track eight, Steel Claw, which is the one... I'm going to contest 
your biggest moments on the album with. Okay. I think Steel Claw, first of all, what a freaking pivot from Better Be Good to Me. Yeah. It's all been these love songs and these floaty little punchy power ballads and then wham, bam, Steel Claw, bam, Rise Up and Revolt, bam, Cold Law, Steel Claw. You know what I mean? Like, Steel Claw is, is a very aggressive pivot from the usual subject matter of this album. But I think as far as, like, big moments go, this one doesn't feel as big because it stays at that same level the whole time. So I think, like, the chorus of Steel Claw is bigger than anything that happens on Let's Stay Together. But Let's Stay Together has that biggest. Mm, I, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, I say no way. No way. It's got the same energy to me. It has the same energy to me as What's Love Got to Do With It. Like, the hit Cold Law, Steel Claw has the same intensity level as What's Love. And then, you know, drops down for the Got to Do There's With It. No, got to do there with is it. no way this has the same energy. The What's Love. The way she punches What's Love and Cold Law, Steel Claw. It's just a different tempo, but it's the same intensity level. Like, if you put them side by side, have them playing side by side, you would not be able to distinguish one over the other in terms of intensity or sound or uh, volume. Their equilibrium points are the same. I gotta disagree. The verse alone is probably a more frantic sprint than anything else anywhere on the album it's frantic it's faster paced i'll absolutely agree with you it's faster paced i'm arguing about its highs and its lows in terms of volume and intensity maybe we'll have to defer to the audience on this and say think whatever you want isn't that what they always do we've actively told them at least i have don't listen to a word i have to say <laughs> fair enough i really like easy living when you make the rules like what a what a line but then also this song is all about people who don't make the rules i like that dichotomy that's illustrated right there and i also like the bit where it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong when you're lying in the gutter it feels very profound like all these things that people fret over just don't even matter or have any impact on the people that really need the help the most i like steel claw and it's a song that i probably didn't appreciate properly until i really 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 listened to it yeah it's good in some ways i'm excited to talk about the next track and in other ways not as much uh the next track on the album track number nine is help what makes you not excited to talk about it? Well, first of all, I'm excited to talk about it because it's our first Beatles cover that we've talked about, our first Lennon-McCartney song. Gotcha. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan. Yeah, and so naturally you don't like this one as much. Right, exactly. That's why I'm not as excited to talk about it because I don't think anybody that covered The this Beatles song, are the world's greatest band and everything they do is perfect and it's impossible for anybody to do their songs better than them no. in James's eye audience, just FYI. This cover is just very different from the original and it's an interesting take. I like the unique vision for this cover of it, but I don't think it necessarily has the same appeal to me as the other one. I think, though, it is really poignant and intentional to put help right after Steel Claw, talking about people who can't help themselves, right? We, we dive right into help if you can, I'm feeling down. But uh, yeah, the original version by Lennon and McCartney is from the 1965 album of the same name. And this version is that slow kind of ballad style with the background singers, this soulful element. They really bring out an extra element of desperation here that I think the original is lacking. Honestly, I think John Lennon has a way more tongue-in-cheek way of presenting this song. And so it's nice to hear it a little more in earnest from Tina Turner. And I gotta say, I think she sings the crap out of this one. She just crushes it. So this is the song I thought maybe you were gonna think uh, was in contention rather than Steel Claw. This was the one, like, when you were like, I don't know if I agree with that. And I was like, oh, he's probably thinking about help. And there's an argument to be made for the intensity of help, but I would argue that the background singers help build that intensity, uh, whereas the other ones, Tina's by herself. That's true. 
The saxophone solo comes back in this song. Yes. We love a saxophone solo here. I love me some sax. Yeah, it's a good one. And that part where everything drops out on the help. It's a more significant hit. Yeah. It's maybe not a bigger peak because there's no instruments, but it is definitely a more significant moment. Yeah, it's a more impactful moment. Bingo. Give you that. Yeah. Do you know what doesn't have too many impactful moments? <laughs> 1984, the closing track. Indeed. It's kind of just there. Yeah. Least amount of plays on Spotify, fun fact. Oh, shocker. I kind of like the funky instrumental vibe going on, though. Well, it's, yeah, I like it. It's okay. But I think to me, unlike literally every other song on this album, 1984 shows its age in a bad way, right? Like I said, some of the stuff on What's Love Got to Do With It, I Can't Stand the Rain, like stuff feels aged, but like aged well. I think 1984 has aged in a way that makes it kind of feel tacky 80s. That's interesting. I I guess I would agree that when you hear this song, you absolutely know what time period it's from. Right. Well, it's also called 1984. Well, yeah. But it also, I think, gives it its charm. When this song starts, you know exactly what kind of vibe it's going to bring. Like, some of these songs almost feel a bit too wishy-washy in terms of it never cements itself anywhere. It just kind of ebbs and flows the whole time. Like, this one, it plants its roots and says, this is my song, and here's how I'm going to do it. I I I like the charm behind it. It also feels like it should be, like, the song during a big climactic fight in an 80s, like, action movie. It does. Well, that's exactly why I say... Maybe we should flip it with Better Be Good To Me because this belongs close to the back middle and Better Be Good To Me is the end credits driving up the coast. Yeah, I'm all for that. Exactly. All I know is you need to beware the savage jaw, right? Uh, in 1984? Yeah. Well, good thing we're a little past that. I do like that we got the savage jaw, we've got the steel claw, like we're, we're building up this villain. Aw, yeah. And then, you know, then the protagonist like screaming out for help to win and then, yeah, then you would end with Better Be Good To Me as the, the final song. Mm -hmm. I'm all for it. I think the album would play a little better if this didn't end it. This song kind of feels all over the place. Personally, I think 1984 is a bit of a disappointing end to the album that's been a really great, virtually timeless piece of work otherwise. No, it definitely wasn't timeless. I'll, I'm going to disagree with that. You don't think it's timeless? I it, Timeless in the sense that, yeah, it's always going to sound like it came out of the 80s, but it's always going to be good music. It's never going to be, like, out of style. You don't think this is a good song? 1984, not as much. The rest of the album, absolutely. I, mean, I don't know if you can argue that it's not ever going to be be out of style i mean this is, uh, it's not like her music is all over the radio <laughs> you know what i mean it's whoa, not whoa, whoa, like whoa, whoa. did we just not do an entire fact about how they just put out a broadway musical two years ago about her and her life yeah because she's a cultural icon okay true and her music was powerful it doesn't mean it's still the hip music that's never gone out of style i don't think it's out of style i think you could play this for any demographic and everyone would like it i disagree i think you have a better chance at 1984 being a song you can play than some of these other ones no way oh wow yeah because again 1984 has got that cheesier like it's set in its ways of like stereotypical 80s sound to it that then when you put it on in like a party setting, everybody's going to be like, all right, yeah, this is just a funky song that we're going to dance to. Whereas some of these other ones are too, they, they take too much thought and they're, they're, they're too niche in their genre. Like this album would go really well, like in like a group of people who are getting together to listen to music vibe versus a, I'm going to play this for a general audience. Uh, who's just trying to listen to good music that everybody's going to like. Like, you're not going to put a lot of these songs, in my opinion, on at, like, a college frat party. But 1984, you could get away with. Sorry? That's your metric for scoring Tina Turner? I'm just thinking college frat parties where you're going to get a lot of different demographics to mix, like, different musical tastes to mix from our generation, right? Maybe. I don't know. Our generation is setting the new standards for what's in, and you're going to get a different grouping of people filling up this one house. 
So uh, in terms of like places our generation would con- congregate that you could get a nice mix of musical taste, I think a college frat party is not bad. Okay, well, Tina Turner, hero of the college frat parties. No, I'm saying the opposite. <laughs> Tina Turner, hated by college frat parties. You're saying you could take a song like Private Dancer and just put it on. You could go walk up to any group of people our age and put that on and think they're going to instantly like the song. That's your argument? I think most of the album is that way. I think something like What's Love Got to Do With It, I mean, would do it. Yeah, I'll give you What's Love Got to Do With It. I My point is, though, I think it does that better than I think. I think your personal musical tastes and biases are clouding your judgment on this. No, I think it's a... I, that's it's still here i can absolutely see why this is perfect for you based on what i know about your musical taste but all of these songs were chart toppers all of these songs were huge and yeah in their time doesn't mean that they've stood the test of time and that they're still popular today i definitely think they still have they've, why are they making movies and music i guess like this music is not like michael jackson right most of his songs were top, chart toppers and his stuff like people instantly recognize i think tina turner is not something that our generation is going to recognize as influentially as like michael jackson and michael jackson's album was equally as big if not bigger it's a lot closer to that level of recognizability i mean knownness and universality than a lot of other albums that we've covered sure i'll give you that i'll give you that we've done some even niche albums than this but to argue that this album is some decade spanning like still hit hit music i don't i don't think that's where it's at anymore it's like a time capsule i'm telling you what do you mean by time capsule? I mean time capsule. Like all this stuff, it still sounds like it's the 80s. Like everybody's forgotten about it and in 20 years they're going to dig it up and be like, this is good? Yeah, sure, I'll give you that. But we're currently in the we've forgotten about Nobody it. Nobody forgets about a time capsule. If you forget about it, you're not going to be able to dig it up in 20 years. It's out of the public mind and only a certain few people or like the county records remember it's there so they know to dig it back up when you're supposed to. I think it's a time capsule in that it preserves this era of music really well. If time capsules, nobody forgets about time capsules, where's the nearest time capsule to you right now? Well, it's not forgetting. I just never knew about it. What I'm saying is all of these songs are very representative of their time period. They age well and they show like they're like a nice little preservation, like a nice little snippet of 80s pop music that doesn't sound tacky or awful today. That's mostly my point. I did not expect the awful album Closer 1984 to spawn such a discussion about the whole album it was really a lot of final spin conversations you're right so let's just let's just move into final spin i've pretty much covered all my bases with everything i've got to say about this album same so music given music in 86 i like a lot of these songs i think i was pleasantly surprised by this album given lyrics in 86 given instruments and production in 88 i think they're really stellar on this album and i'm um, given the overall vibe a 90 I think this is a fun album cover to cover. It's one that I liked an unexpected amount. And a lot of these songs are not going to be songs that I skip very often on my playlist. How often do you skip a song on your playlist? I feel like you almost never skip one. So often. No, all the time. Because it's got to be the right mood for a lot of songs. I have to be in the right frame of mind for a lot of them. So some of them will get maybe a verse and a chorus. Some of them will get an intro until I'm tired of them. Some of them I'll listen to all the way through and then listen to a second time. It just depends. She's not going to get a bonus point because most of these songs were covers, like we said. And so that puts her overall score at an 87 points even. And it lands her at number 169 on the playlist. Ooh, not quite top 150. Nope. Don't know why I would have ever thought it was top 150. Well, so actually, though, the <laughs> compilation album that I did listen to was in my top 150. So, you know, mm. Tina Turner's no slouch so far on the ranking spreadsheet. But compilation albums, they don't... You've already said yourself your distaste for compilation albums on your spreadsheet, how they skew. They mess with the rankings a little bit, but they're marked as such on the spreadsheet. 
All right. What about you? I think this is one where your score is going to disappoint me a little bit. Yeah? Early indications and later indications kind of pointed towards it. I don't think that's true at all. All I said early was that none of the songs uh, hit the same hype level for me as What's Love Got to Do With It. And at the end, all I said was that it's not super popular today. None of that indicated on my thoughts or opinions on how I felt about the album. Yeah, but I'm just saying. Yeah, so I, I already said everything I have to say, I think, about this, about the album as a whole, especially in our little back and forth there at the end. I need you to do me a favor. I want you to tell me your top three. Oh, I get a top three out of ten? I'm very curious about your top three on this one. Well, a lot of the songs, you'd be like, I didn't really like this about it. But then I'd say something negative about the song. I'd be like, whoa, I love this song. But you were very <laughs> back and forth, so I couldn't okay. get a good gauge on how you felt about a lot of these. So I want a top three from you. Yeah, my top three has to include what's love got to do with it. Okay. Well, disappointingly, it has to include I Can't Stand the Rain. I want the lyrics to be better, but musically, it's just too darn good. And then, I think I'm going to take Let's Stay Together in the third slot. James Bull Mention would go to Steel Claw's just such a hard pivot thematically. Mm. But I think Steel Claw would get my mention. Okay. What's your top three? I don't know. I have more than my normal allotment written down. I mean, for the low, low price of sacrificing six future episode picks, you could take the whole album in a historic first. I have eight written down. Eight? Oh my <laughs> gosh. You might as well just take the whole album. Well, I'd only have to give up three to take everything that I have. I'd only have to give up three. That's true. Okay, let's eliminate that one. He's making cuts. Okay, yeah. All right, so I've got uh, I've got seven of them here, which is three additional picks. So the next three episodes, wow. I'm going to be down one. I pity the... Three songs that did not find your favor here. <laughs> well, I have one, one that I had to knock off because I didn't want to... Would it be more fun if I guessed which three you got rid of? Ooh, if you tried to guess which ones I didn't put in? Yeah. Yeah, that could be fun. Okay. Well, we can do that. Go for it. I can't even do this. It's too much pressure. <laughs> I don't think you took... I might have been queen. I'm, I'm going to say I don't think you took help. Okay. As much as you like the soulful style of it i don't think it made the cut for you and i don't think you took i can't stand the rain you got one of those three right really wow man i guess i was off in album order what's love got to do with it yeah, okay i might have been queen was the one i got right uh-huh connor will mention to i can't stand the rain i thought you might take show some respect because you liked the show some respect i thought you liked the break enough I did. Oh, listen, that may or may not have been the one I uh, still axed, even though I didn't want to. May have been. May have been. Who's to say? Uh, Up next, Private Dancer, Let's Stay Together. No surprises. Steel Claw, Help, and 1984. You skipped skipped the coastal car ride. I did. I skipped the coastal car ride. Wow. Take the whole dang album next time. (laughs) I liked a lot of these songs a lot, all for different reasons. Like I said, it's a great little time capsule of the 80s. That it is. As for my playlist pick... This is one we're going to have to hash out together, I think. I think we are. Can we collectively agree that What's Love Got to Do With It is making the cut? Yeah. Well, that leaves us with one more. How do you feel about Let's Stay Together? I think I'm okay with that. Okay, nailed it. That was a lot easier than I thought it would be. Well, that wasn't the one I was expecting you to say. So I had to stop and think for a moment. I was like, wait, wasn't that the one I wanted? (laughs) Like, I had to double check. (laughs) Were you expecting me to push for Can't Stay in the Rain? No, I was expecting you to push for Steel Claw. Oh, I don't like Steel Claw that much. (laughs) We had a whole argument over it. It was only going to be my mentioned song. I don't think Steel Claw is representative enough of this album. Yeah, I think Help was the other one I was interested in putting on the playlist. Mm. I think Let's Stay Together and What's Love Got to Do With It are the biggest two songs on the album. Definitely. So I'm, I'm okay with that. All right, we've reached a consensus. 
As for my unit... And score. And score, yes. You thought this one's going to go pretty low. You still feeling that way? Well, you, you did take seven. I don't know. I, I don't know anymore. I've taken a lot of tracks in the past because I couldn't distinguish between them. Then I mean, I liked the album better than others. Well, that's true. Um, Before you started naming off tracks, it wasn't going to be too bad. I was already picturing this as a high, maybe top of sevens. I can see it pushing higher than that now. So you're thinking it's an eight? It could be. This one is going to get nine slippery nine. buffoons out of nine ten. slippery buffoons. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow, another nine. At the beginning of this analysis, you're like, oh, that doesn't sound good for the album. I was sitting here chuckling to myself. I muted myself so I could laugh uh, <laughs> because I had to slot it in at a nine. Wow. Oh, good. Tina did well. And so then I also, then from that moment on, did my best not to say anything too positive about any of the songs. <laughs> <laughs> Sat here and kept it all hidden. You you deceived me. I All the way through, I was like, wow, I don't think he liked this enough. Like, I thought he was really going to enjoy this. I was not. This was, is absolutely this kind of music. This like '80s rock. This is this is where most of my musical taste comes from. Yeah, that's why I was so. These '80s and '90s are where a lot of my musical tastes are. So we've already mentioned uh, just the other week how the nines are kind of a stacked category for you. Yeah, that makes this one pretty tough to slot in. I would guess it really does. It really does. And honestly, where I'm looking, I might have to go give one of these albums another listen side by side. Ooh. In order to determine the cut. For me, it's going either above or below Montero. Oh. And again, we've run into a situation where how do you even compare albums like that? That's why I'm struggling. Because <laughs> I know it goes below Johnny Cash. I just don't know if it goes below Lil Nas X. I don't think it does. I think it goes above it, but I need to be sure. I'll take it. Well, this has been another successful episode of everybody's favorite record ranking podcast, Spin It. Next week begins Mixtober officially. Well, this week, this was the soft intro. So everybody get your popcorn ready and get your Halloween movies on this week so you can be ready for our next album, which is very, very Halloween movie focused. No spoilers. But you'll see when we get there. I'm excited to talk about it. I know people that have recommended it to us are excited to hear us talk about it. I'm ready to go. I am too. Until next time, have a great week. And as always, keep spinning. Keep spinning. I should have said keep turning. Oh, we should have done a funky pause in between it. Like, like, in, like in show some respect. Um, keep pause, pause, spinning. Well, it's too late now. We've missed the boat. We're driving up the country road alongside the cliff of the ocean in a getaway car. You're talking about the end of Shawshank Redemption, by the way. I never said it was a good getaway car. It's the end of a lot of movies. Yeah. Yeah, it is technically, I guess, Shawshank does fit in it. Mm-hmm.